0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the IELTS VIP podcast. This is Chris Pell from IELTS Advantage, and you're very, very welcome. So, the IELTS VIP podcast is very, very simple. We have a VIP group of students who are members of our VIP course. And one of the things that we do with them, one of the many things we do with them, is we ask them once a week, What question would you like us to discuss on the podcast? And we'll go into a lot of detail just on one question and we got a really interesting question this week which was um, what are the biggest myths about the IELTS test and I thought this was a really interesting question because um, I've worked in many different fields, I've I've had many different jobs and I've never experienced anything like the the number of myths and misconceptions about this test, um, if you go into any school, any country, talk to anybody, and um, they'll tell you, in, in no uncertain terms, what they think they have to do to to get a sc- uh, to get a high score. And then you'll speak to another person, and they'll tell you the complete opposite. And then you'll tell, talk to another person, and they'll tell you something completely different. Um, and uh, the reason why I want to talk about this is these myths, these misconceptions, lower your scores. So if you believe any of these things. It it might mean that it literally does lower your score, but it also can mean that you're focusing on something that doesn't really matter. Or more importantly, you're not spending enough time on the things that actually do matter. So if you wanna be successful in anything, it's a really good idea, I think you would agree, to ignore the stuff that doesn't lead to improvement and focus on the things that, that do lead to improvement. So what we're gonna do is I've I've made a note of the top 10 myths, the top 10 misconceptions, and we're gonna go through each of these and talk about um, why these are and, and how they lower your score. So the first one that you'll you'll hear a lot is, and this is apl- applicable to both the speaking test and the writing test, is there's just one correct answer. So what you'll hear a lot of students say is, oh you, you didn't answer this speaking question this particular way, therefore you're going to get a lower score. Or you didn't answer this uh, Uh, writing task two question or task one question in this particular way, therefore you're going to get a lower score, which is complete nonsense. It's not a, the speaking test is not a test of what is the correct answer it's not a general knowledge test um same with the writing test it's not a ge- it's not a knowledge test or a quiz where there's like one correct answer you know for example um you know what's the capital of of the republic of ireland dublin okay there's just one correct answer to that but that's not what the ielts test is it's a test of your ability to receive and produce english to communicate freely in english so On the speaking test and on the writing test, there's no one correct answer. There are hundreds of different ways that you could get a band nine in the writing test or a band nine in the speaking test. There are many, many different ways to write an essay. There are many, many different ways to produce a good task one response. There are literally thousands of different answers that you could produce in in response to what the examiner asks you in the speaking test and you could get a band nine. It's not about the the actual content as much as the marking criteria. For speaking, that's pronunciation, fluency and coherence, grammar and vocabulary. For writing, that's task achievement, coherence and cohesion, grammar and vocabulary. Those are the only things the examiners are, are marking you on. So when you hear someone talk about a specific structure or a specific answer or something like that, um, then it's normally a myth. they They don't know what they're talking about. Number two is, that the examiner must agree with my opinion. Um, I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of students, and, and especially when doing speaking tests, and they said, oh, did I get a low score because you don't agree with my personal opinion? Again, it's not a, a, a test of your opinion. <laughs> and what what the examiner could completely disagree with your opinion on something and give you a band nine they could also completely 100% agree with your opinion on something and give you a band four. Because it's not about whether they agree with your opinion, it's about the marking criteria. Um, for writing, again, grammar, vocabulary, task achievement, and coherence and cohesion. For speaking, uh, grammar, vocabulary, fluency, and and pronunciation. Those are the only things that they are thinking about. They're not thinking like, do I like this person? Do I agree with them? Like, it, it, the, that just doesn't exist. So don't worry about that. Worry about the, the marking criteria. And you'll hear me saying that a lot. Number three is something that is very, very destructive to not only people's um, scores, but also to their bank balances and to their time and to their stress levels and even to the, you know, to the um, the success of their lives and the, their their families. Which is some testing centers, whether that is a particular center within a city or within a country or IDP or British Council, or I've even heard of some people flying to different countries because they think that certain test centers give better marks. They're that that are easier than other test centers. I even had one student who flew from Turkey to Vancouver in Canada. That's not a lie. That is, I thought it was complete nonsense when I heard it, and then I spoke to the person one-on-one after they joined our course. And it it was amazing. I said, like, you did what? And they said, yeah, because my cousin did the test there, and they're not very good at English, and they got a band seven. So that test center must be very easy. So I went there. It was like, no, 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 no. And they spent, I think it was $2,000 traveling there and hotels and test fees and everything. And they failed. Of course they failed. Why did they fail? Because the test center has nothing to do with it. There aren't easier test centers. British Council isn't easier than IDP. IDP isn't easier than the British Council. It's not like if you go to a non-native English-speaking country versus a native English-speaking country. Examiners are all trained in the exact same way. They're using the exact same marking criteria. If somebody gets a, a good score, it's because they deserve that score. If you get a lower score, it's because you got a lower score so what you need to do is you need to improve your ability you do not need to go to a different um, a, a different place to do it in okay so that's really really important that you realize that Um, so number four some examiners are more generous than others so this is in relation to uh, uh, the third point, which is some testing centers are, are easier than others. You'll also get people saying within a test center, oh, go to this guy or go to this girl because she is, is uh, much easier on, on than the others. And some, some examiners are really, really hard and really harsh. Again, this is complete nonsense. Um, this is because you cannot accept that you're just not at that level yet. So, like trying to go to different, um, trying to go to different centers or different examiners, is really ignoring the elephant in the room. It's really ignoring the thing that you don't want to, to think about, which is the fact that you are not at that level yet that you want to be be at, and you're just not prepared to put in the work. Like, which do you think would be easier? Like, this is what I said to that student who I spoke to before. Fly from Turkey to Vancouver and spend $2,000 and weeks of wasted time while you wait for your results? Or would it have been better if you just find a really, really good teacher, pay them a fraction of that that cost, and work really, really hard? Which one do you think is more likely to result in success? Do you think it's more likely to be someone who... Believes in these myths, or someone that actually puts in the work and gets to the level that they need to be at. Um, again, it's not the examiner, it's not the test center, it's you. It's all about you. They're testing you, and um, so th- you know they're not subjective; they're very, very objective. Number five is the one that probably annoys me the most because this is how people actually cheat you out of your money. Um, And number five is that you can learn some tricks or cheats or hacks or secrets. Um, Why does this annoy me so much? Because this is what a lot of schools and online courses and teachers do. Not all of them. Some really great ones out there. But some of them, what they'll do is they'll tell you things like, join my course and I'll teach you band seven secrets or join my school and I'll teach you how to get a band nine in five days or something, some nonsense like that. Or I guarantee you'll get a band seven. These people know nothing about IELTS. If they knew anything about IELTS, they wouldn't make statements like that because it's impossible for 100% of people to join your course or your school and for all of them to get a Band 9. And uh, uh, That's a fairy tale. Why do they do this? Because they're trying to cheat you. They're trying to get your money. They know that um, you are desperate to get these scores and you will pay a lot of money to, to get the tuition that, that you're seeking. and. If you come to someone like me who tells you, actually you're not ready yet, you're gonna to have to work really hard and you can get there eventually, but you know, it's gonna take a lot of work and you know, it's gonna take a lot of time. If you hear someone like me say that and then you go and look at another course and they say, You know, join my band nine course and I guarantee one hundred percent your results in, in seven days, you're gonna go with that person. All right. So, um, Be very, very, very careful with people uh, making big, big claims. The bigger the claim, the more unbelievable the claim, um, then the more likely they are lying to you. And in my book, if you're lying to someone to get their money, then you're a criminal. So do you want to give your money to a criminal? Probably not. Um, So yeah, the more realistic a teacher is with you, the more honest they are with you, the more I would trust them. Um, like we actually reject a lot of people from from joining our course we we, we tell a lot of people like you just can't join um, because you're not suitable for the course like we actually had a guy today emailing me who keeps emailing, emailing me about three or four times a day, desperately asking like can can I join your course? Can I join your course like no, you can't because this guy just wants tips and tricks and he wants to do things. Immediately, he doesn't have an idea about what, a, what the, the amount of work that it actually will take. So be very, very careful with that. Number six might be quite a surprising one. Um, is, and this is that if you just study IELTS, you're going to get a really high score, which is not true. Um, there are a number of different things that you need to do in order to get a high IELTS score. And the first and foremost one, the most important one, is have a certain level of English. So you have a certain level of grammar, a certain level of vocabulary. Your are writing, you're speaking, you're, you're listening, your reading skills to be at a certain level. It doesn't matter how many structures you memorize or how many tricks you, you employ or how many tips you learn, you're not going to be able to, um, uh, to, to, to get a, a high enough score unless your English as is at a certain level. Now does that mean that if you're really good at English, You can just go and do the test and get a high score. Again, no, it's not just about studying English. It's about studying English and IELTS together. Um, You need to have a certain level of English and then go and learn about the test. Learn about the different um, questions that they're going to be asking. Learn about the marking criteria and what the examiners are going to be looking for and tailor your answers to that. Um, And that will really, really result in high scores. So um, the next one, number seven, is <laughs> the one that if you if you speak to a hundred IELTS examiners, because um, I've spoken to un- hundreds and hundreds of IELTS examiners, if you ask them what's the most frustrating thing or the most annoying thing um, that you find with students, what they what they do in the exam, and it's related to vocabulary. It's about students thinking that in order to get a high score. All you have to do is learn a list of big words, high level or band nine words, insert them into your essays, or insert them into your um, into your speaking answers, and you'll get a high score, which is complete and utter nonsense, and will lower your score. So, if you do this, a number of things are happening. So, uh, number one, you're thinking that the only thing being tested is vocabulary, it's not. Um, T- vocabulary is 25% of your speaking score and 25% of your writing score. 25% is significant, but it's not that much. Seven. There's another 75% that you're not really considering. The other thing to consider also is not only is range being uh, tested so what I mean by range is the range of your vocabulary how complex is your vocabulary how wide ranging is your vocabulary that's not the only thing being tested within vocabulary it's accuracy is also being tested so what happens if you learn a list of big words you're going to make a mistake 90% of the time. So your essay or your speaking answers are just going to be full of mistakes. Idioms are a really, really good example of this, where you'll find a lot of teachers telling their students that you know if you learn lots of idioms and use lots of idioms in your speaking te- um, test, some t- some teachers even think that you should use them in your writing test, which is a complete no-no, but um, if you use them in your, your speaking test, you'll, you're guaranteed to get a high score. So what happens? Student learns lots of idioms, tries to use them, messes up the the idiom, says it incorrectly, messes up the pronunciation, messes up the use, messes up the meaning, and their their answers are just full of mistakes. Do you think you're getting a band nine? Absolutely not. Do you think you're even getting a band seven? No, you're not. You're going you're going to get a low mark, because not only are you making lots of vocabulary mistakes, you're not you're not actually answering the questions either. You're just thinking that it's a an idiom test or a vocabulary test not an actual speaking test so you know it, it's a um um it's it's a communication test it's a speaking test not a vocabulary or um uh, um an idiom test like that so number 8 is <laughs> this is probably the funniest one um how you greet the examiner in the speaking test and how your body language and your eye contact and uh, whether you smile at them or not and your handshake and what you wear um, is going to influence your mark. It's not, all right? The, the, The test does not begin. The examiner does not start marking you until after that, all right? The part where you greet the examiner and say hello to them and show your ID and all those sort of things, that's not tested, all right? And how fair would it be Uh, For a person to judge you on your body language, your hand gestures, your eye contact, your clothes that you're wearing, your handshake, would that be a fair test of your English? No. And that's why it's not considered. That's why they test your grammar, your vocabulary, your fluency and your pronunciation. Only those things. I've been on, uh, on YouTube and I saw YouTube videos with millions of views on how to greet your examiner. Like, uh, that, it's not going to be, it's not going to lower your score if you greet the examiner and, and smile at them and, and, and all of those things. It's not going to lower your score, but it might actually lower your score if you are spending more time watching YouTube videos on how to greet the examiner rather than actually improving your grammar or your vocabulary or your pronunciation or your fluency. So you've heard me say these things over and over and over again, and it's all about focusing on what matters and ignoring what doesn't matter. So you know, be be very careful who you listen to. Um, number nine. This is an understandable one. Um, you'll hear a lot of people saying, uh, "Do I am, am I getting a low score in the speaking test because I don't have an American accent or I don't have an, uh, an a British accent, um, or can I improve my speaking scores by?" developing a british accent or an american accent uh, no you can't Um they're not testing how british you sound it's not a british test uh, they're not testing your how american you sound it's not an american test um w- why would that be relevant Um does that mean someone from australia or new zealand or ireland or scotland or wales does that mean they would get a low score Does that mean there's a particular British accent that's better than all the others? Like which British accent are you talking about? Are you talking about the Manchester accent, the London accent? A Newcastle accent, like where, which one is better? Like, there's no such thing as a British accent, really. You're maybe talking about the RP, like posh accent, but nobody actually sounds like that. Like, v- there's a tiny, tiny, tiny community of people who maybe live in Chelsea or Knightsbridge that speak like they've got marbles in their mouth, but you know, most people. 99.999% of British people do not sound like the Queen. The Queen sounds like the Queen because she's the Queen um, but that's not really relevant to communication because if you go and get a job in London or wherever you want to get a job in the UK very, very, very few people speak like that. Um, you might get a few people on TV um, but, you know, that's it. It's not It's not a test of how British you sound because there's no such thing as a British accent if if you ask me. Last but not least, number 10 um, is related to grammar, um, which a lot of people think that if you use lots and lots of different grammar structures, and many, many different types of tenses, you're going to get a high score for grammar. Exactly the same as the point I made relating to vocabulary. Not only will range of vocabulary be tested, accuracy will also be tested. So I, I remember speaking to a student a few years ago, and, and funny enough, I actually spoke to another student last week who told me the exact same thing, and they, t- they told me that the reason why they were not getting a high score in writing was because they didn't use the first, the second, the third, and zero conditionals within a 250-word essay. Um, they also said that they didn't use the passive and the active enough they told me that they didn't use enough tenses so they didn't they said they you needed to use six different tenses so uh, like <laughs> it it's nearly impossible to write an effective essay and include six different tenses four different types of conditional structure and active and passive all at the same time because that's not how someone writes an essay um like how do people normally write essays they normally write essays Like Let's say someone's a native English speaker and they're writing an essay for for university or you're, uh, you're an academic, you're a professor and you're writing an academic journal. A professor, even an English professor, doesn't go in and think, how many different tenses can I use or how many different grammar structures can I use? They think, how can I write an effective essay or how can I write an effective report? And, and that's kind of the attitude that you should have. Go into the, the, the writing test not thinking how many different structures and how many different tenses can I use. Just focus on writing an effective essay, and you will naturally use a range of different grammar structures. What you should be thinking about more is accuracy. How many error-free sentences are you producing? Um, and because that is the thing that's being tested really your 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 the range of different sentences and, and structures most people who need a band 7 are using those naturally anyway but most people failing to get a band 7 are they're, they're, they're just making too many small grammar mistakes so those are the top 10 myths. Do you agree with any of them? Um, let me know, it would be interesting to, to find out. Are there any other myths that, you, um, that you're aware of? Do you disagree with me on anything? It'd be interesting to hear that as well. Um, have your teachers told you any of those things? Um, unfortunately, there's no like, standardized course that an IELTS teacher takes before they become an IELTS teacher. Um, my mum could become an IELTS teacher tomorrow like and she, <laughs> she's my mom. I love her, but she, you wouldn't want her as her English teacher, as your your IELTS teacher. I could literally walk out that door onto the street, walk up to the nearest bus stop, and just pull someone out of the bus stop and say, "You're an IELTS teacher now." There's not, there's no barriers. It's not like a doctor or a lawyer where you have to go and do a certain degree and then you have to go and do extra courses and pass lots of tests. Anybody can just say. I'm an IELTS teacher. So what happens is when you have a completely unregulated um, uh, industry with millions of people participating in that industry and billions of dollars um, being poured into that industry is you'll get a lot of people talking a lot of nonsense and pretending they know what they're talking about. Um, like what, one of the ways that you can test this is if you ask your teacher something and they always come up with an answer And a lot of those answers sound a little bit dodgy. Because if you ask someone who is actually an expert in something and they don't know the answer, what they'll say is, I don't know the answer to that. So what happens is you're in a classroom and you're dealing with someone who doesn't really know what they're doing and you ask them a question, what they're going to do is they're not going to be able to say, I don't know the answer. Because they're afraid of you finding out that they're full of nonsense. So what they'll do is they'll make up an answer. That answer becomes a myth. And if if this happens over and over and over and over and over again, you'll get lots and lots of myths, which is exactly what's happened in the IELTS industry, where you'll get people talking about how to how to shake the hand of the examiner and what hand gestures to use rather than focusing on grammar and vocabulary and fluency and pronunciation and all of these things actually being tested. So I'm not I'm not um you know I'm not disparaging all IELTS teachers by the way. There are some great ones, but I think if you're a really really dedicated um IELTS teacher and you really care about the scores that your students are getting and the welfare of your students, I think you'll you'll agree with me because it's not in anybody's interests to have lots and lots of, of people encouraging these myths and giving people the wrong advice. And, and then that leads to people getting low scores, wasting their money, you know, um, not having success that they, that they deserve. So um, that's my little rant for today. What time is it? Nearly time to go. So thank you very much, guys. Hope that you enjoyed um, that podcast. And if you need anything, feel free to go to my website and you'll be able to get some advice there. Thank you very much, and I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.